And today I'm going to dig into the concept of writing engaging must-read emails. I think a lot of times, and you know, I get questions about this from time to time, you know, it's easy for us to talk about writing emails from the perspective of, you know, let's write a sales email or let's write content email or whatever the case is. But the truth of the matter is when I write my daily email, I, I want it to be engaging. And in fact, if, if I'm writing a sales letter, if I'm writing an email, there's a thought process that I go through that allows me to be engaging. So when I'm writing that email, I am thinking along the lines of what can I say, what can I ask, what what's the right you know what's the right question to ask that will stimulate the reader to be interested in reading more and so in order to do that I've got to kind of put myself in their shoes I've got to ask myself okay what is it that the other person is wanting to get from this email because I make the assumption that if you're reading an email from me that you're reading it because it'll be interesting because it is going to reveal to you something that you don't know. So my intention when I write an email is to teach something that you don't know. I mean, that, that's the bottom line. Now, obviously, if I send it to a list of several thousand people, I know that some people are already going to know it, and you read the first line, and you're like, oh, I don't need to learn this, and, and you click delete, and the email goes away, and it's no big deal. And the reason that folks continue to read those emails, even if, let's say, two-thirds of them are things that you already know, is because a couple of times a week, you learn or they learn something new that they've never learned before. And it allows them to say, okay, great, I'm learning something that makes me want to open the next email. You know, sometimes folks will ask, you know, what's, what's the secret to writing subject lines so that people open your emails? How do you keep your open rate high? And sure, there's gimmicks and there's certain words that sometimes get a little bit more subject line opens. The truth of the matter is the most secure way to increase open rate is for people to enjoy the last email that you sent. The biggest predictor of open rate on today's email is how effective yesterday's email was. So I've seen people before, they'll go out and they'll, they'll buy like a list of 100 amazing subject lines. And they'll start using those subject lines. And, and at first, open rates go up. But then once people get realize they're duped, they were duped into opening an email that's only, the only part of that email that's engaging is the subject line. And they go, I don't like the email. Because the email doesn't add anything, then open rates go right back down. The subject line is not the most important driver of open rates on your email campaign, the most important driver of open rates on your email campaign is engaging emails. So it's, I believe it's critical that we use and you learn to write engaging emails to make that happen. And so what I thought I'd do today is dig into that and share with you what does it take to make that email engaging. Why do people want to read your emails? And so the very first thing that we start with is a need. Why, why would somebody want to read this email? And I think that sometimes when folks are writing emails, they're thinking along the lines of, what do I want to teach you? But it's not that way. It's what do you need from me? And so what is it, what is it that you need from me? 
Why do you need, what is it that you need from me and how can I solve that? So I have to ask, what do you need from me? You know, when you're first starting out in the business, you have to figure out, you have to learn what are people looking for. Now, obviously, in your email campaign, you're going to ask questions. What are your challenges? What are your struggles? If you followed me for a while, you've probably seen some of those types of emails. You're just starting out, you don't have any subscribers. You can ask yourself, if you were in the shoes of somebody learning, what are some of the questions that you would have? Or you can go online and look in some of the groups for your topic, some of the forums for your topic, maybe YouTube for your topic. What kind of questions are people asking? And the types of questions that people are asking, some people have a need, and that need is what you're going to meet. Okay? So the question is, what is the need on the other end? And, you know, one of the things that you can do is make a list of 50 or 100 needs, literally a list of 50 to 100 needs that people might have on your list. And then every day when you go write your daily email, you can look at the list and say, okay, well, I'll cover that need today. I'll cover that need today. And after you've written to 100 needs, you can start all over again. In 100 days, you can write a new email. I'm not talking about copy and pasting the old email, but I'm talking about writing a new email that addresses the same need that you addressed 100 days ago. Because if somebody's still reading all your emails after 100 days, they probably haven't solved all the problems in your niche. They probably, at this point, need a refresher. And, and perhaps at that point, you'll have some more ideas. You allow people have asked a lot of questions. You add it to your ongoing list so that you can solve needs. So the question is, when I'm writing an email and Obviously, I'm teaching this differently than I often teach. I often teach in a lecture style. It's okay, these are the seven points. But that's not how I write my emails. I write my emails from a creative space inside of me. I write my emails thinking, I'm imagining I am in conversation with you. I'm in conversation with one person. And I'm asking myself, what could be interesting here? And sometimes I like to just get into a flow when I'm writing these emails. So I might ask. You know, are you struggling with something? Are you frustrated with something? Do you have this need? And the nice thing about doing that, that's called a call-out, by the way. That's a call-out. I'm calling out folks that have a certain need or a certain frustration or a certain struggle. I'm calling them out. And if when somebody reads that first line, they're like, oh, I don't have that need, they can close the email. It's no big deal. They don't have to spend three minutes reading the email. But if they have that need, they're going to go, oh, wow. Yes, I can learn something about that. And so then... Then we have the issue that folks in the back of their mind, remember you're talking to a specific person that has a specific need, and what do we know about that person? Unless the person is just learning to draw or just learning karate, the average person that joins your list with a problem has possibly had that problem and not found a solution for three to five years. So the question is, if you just go out there and parrot everybody else in your niche, and just tell them the same old thing everybody else has, you're not helping them. Why? Because they've heard it before. They've heard it before. The question is, when you're writing this email, you've got to ask yourself, okay, what have they heard before? This is what they've heard before. Why isn't that working for them? Oh, wow. Wouldn't that be a great thing to write an email? Perhaps you've heard that the best way to manage your time is to make a huge to-do list you followed all of the big programs for productivity. You have these huge to-do lists, and you find at the end of the day, you've crossed off three items on the to-do list, but you haven't really gotten anything done. Have you ever struggled with that? Because, and I'm making that up. 
just like I could make something up in karate, or I could, but I'm, I want you to, you're, you could use those words. You could say, perhaps you've tried. What has everybody in your niche tried? Perhaps you've tried to do this, this, and this, and it hasn't worked. Why? Now, you've got to tell them why, right? Why hasn't it worked? Now, a lot of times when we tell people something about what's not working for them, if we come out directly and say, the reason it's not working for you is because you are a uh, blank, 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 who doesn't understand, blank, 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 and can't figure out blank, 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 they're just going to turn right off and run the other way. So instead, we're going to take a different tactic. We're going to ask ourselves, why really is it not working for them? Why? Why is it not working? What is the biggest reason why that tactic does not work for most people for whom it's not working? You see, it doesn't make a difference if it works for some people. You know, maybe to-do lists work for some people. It doesn't really work for me, but maybe it works for some people. And so for the people for whom it works, it doesn't make any difference if we tell the people that it does not work for why it does not work for them. Because remember, if the to-do list, if that's what we're writing an email about, is working for people, those people are not going to read the email. So your only audience is the people that are struggling. So ask yourself, why are they struggling? What are the reasons they struggle? Let's look at a to-do list. Why do people struggle with a to-do list? They struggle because psychologically, as humans, from about kindergarten or preschool to 12th grade, we are taught that as long as you do 92% of the work, you get an A, and if you do 83% of the work, you get a B. And depending on your upbringing, you've been taught or brainwashed or whatever to believe that as long as you get 92%, life is good, or it's okay to get 83%, that's the cutoff. And maybe you were raised to be, you know, it's okay to get 75%. So for 12 years, you've been indoctrinated psychologically to hit 75, 83, or 92%, and you're good. Now, because as humans, we our brains are optimizing machines. So when you write out a to-do list with 100 items on it, your brain immediately realizes that it cannot do everything on the list, but it also realizes that based on your upbringing, it either has to do 75% of what's on the list, 83% of what's on the list, or 92% of what's on the list. So your brain, unbeknownst to you, and notice, I'm writing this in the email. I'm explaining to them why whatever it is is not working for them. I'm explaining to them why what all the other gurus in that your niche are telling them is not working for them. Now, I'm not calling the guru a liar. I'm not telling them they're wrong because I don't, I don't want to create a fight over this. I don't want anybody to feel like I am being impartial or political or anything like that. I'm simply going to the root of the matter. So I'm writing in the email, why is the to-do list not working? Because your brain is looking at that to-do list, and it is seeking out, like a heat-sinking missile, it is seeking out the easiest things to do on the list 
because every single time you do something quickly and easily and cross something off the list, you get a dopamine hit in your brain. Something in your brain goes, ta-ching, this is good. Just like when you're, you're on uh, Facebook or you're on your email, and every single time you see a post, ta-ding, ta-ding, your body is just constantly feeding you little hits of dopamine that make you feel good. And that's what's happening with the to-do list. Every time you cross something off, ding, ding. And as soon as you hit 75% at the end of the day, you feel really good. Why? Because you've got a C on the day. Or if you were conditioned to get Bs, feel really good at the end of the day. I got my B for the day. I can quit. I feel good. You come home. Your wife says, how was your day? Ah, I had a great day. I had 83% on the day. It's great. What happens is the next day when you look at your list, you've crossed off 83 items, there's 17 left. Your brain looks at it and goes, subconsciously, unbeknownst to you, it goes, nah, no way. No way we can do those 17 items today. So you know what, Sean? You better fill your to-do list up again. So you go write all the other things down you could do for the day. You do that for a month, guess what? You'll do 83 things every, every single day. But by the end of the month, the important things are not done. Why? Because the important, the most important thing on your list takes two days to do. What that means is, if you were to take two days to do the first item on your list, the most important thing, by the end of the second day, you would have a 1% score on your day. Now, what is 1%? What were you conditioned or indoctrinated to believe in preschool through 12th grade or college, four more years, or college more, two to eight more years? What were you conditioned? A 1% is a failing grade. So what that tells your brain is that if you do the most important thing first, you failed. Now, what have I just written? I have written an engaging email. Why? Because I have told a story about something. Now, there's many stories that you can tell, and I'm going to go through a few of them right here. I'm going to try to use some different niche areas. I told a story about why... What others teach isn't working for you. Okay? What happens is when that happens, the first time you do that in your email campaign, people go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. But after 90 days and you've written 12 emails telling them why 12 different things, one at a time, you're telling them one at a time, why 12 different things are not working for them that everybody else tells them to do. You give them the psychological reasons or, or whatever. It doesn't have to be psychological reason, be any reason, but why it's not working for them. After a while, they begin to think two things on their own. You don't have to tell them. I wonder if the other people have my best interest in mind. I wonder if the other people know what they're talking about. I wonder if. But they're thinking that, not you. You're not planting it in their mind. They're thinking that on their own. What they're also doing is they're beginning to go, wow, I can really learn a lot from Sean, or I can really learn a lot from Mary, or I can really learn a lot from Craig. Why? Because you've been teaching them these things. That's engaging. That's an engaging email right there. Okay, so what else makes it? You know what else? What other story could we tell? We could tell the story of how to do something in a different way that they've, than they've ever done it before. Okay, now. When you tell someone how to do something in a different way that they've never done it before, 
if on a regular basis you're the kind of person that just says, oh, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Do it this way and it's better. Now, you can take that from your best friend from time to time if you know they're usually right. Right? But if somebody does that to you all the time, it begins to feel like nagging or it begins to feel like they think they're better than you, and you get, it, it just gets old. You get tired of it. Well, it happens the same thing in your email campaign. So if you write emails that are like, oh, the way you've been doing it is wrong, here's a better way, it doesn't work. It doesn't work psychologically. It doesn't work emotionally, and you push them away, and they don't buy from you, and you wonder why. But what if, as you were writing your email, you were to say something, something intriguing, like, have you ever wondered if there might be a different way to do X, Y, Z that might have different results for you. And you have to give people a reason why. Always give people a reason why. Let's say it's karate. They've been doing karate and they've been learning these punches, but their elbows are hurting. And so maybe you say, have you noticed that some people, so you're taking the pressure off of them, some people, when they do the certain kind of punches in karate, because you're the karate person, you know what the punches are called, and I don't. I'm just making this up for content for the call. When you do these certain kinds of punches, you notice that some people get elbow pain when they do that kind of a punch, and if you get elbow pain, it's possible that the way that you're doing it, although it's perfect form, should be altered just a little bit for you. Because some people's elbows, and I don't know anything about karate, and I don't know anything about kinesiology as it, go, as it pertains to karate, but if you're a karate expert, you should know all this stuff. You should know that some people's elbows work at a 27-degree slant, and some people's elbows operate at a 34-degree slant, and you should have a test for it. I don't know anything about slants. I'm making it up. Because in your niche, you should know the statistics. And you should be able to tell people that some people have a 27-degree bend in their elbow and some people have a 34-degree bend in their elbow and that if you're doing the 34-degree punch for a 27-degree elbow, that you'll get pain. And if you're doing the 27-degree punch for a 34-degree elbow, that you'll get pain. And it's important that you take this test to find out if you have elbow pain, what degree is your elbow located at. And, and so you give them the test. Now, how do we make them want to open tomorrow's email? Now, notice I'm pretty much, although I'm not writing the email, I'm telling you what you could write. If you wrote most of what I just wrote, it would be a great, intriguing email, wouldn't it? Okay. Now, what if, notice in this email, we have made a comment about maybe there's a different way to punch, but I have not revealed it in this email. And so if I cut the email off right now, what are people going to want? They're going to want to know what it is that I left out. It's just like when you're watching a soap opera, you're watching, you know, a weekly show on television. Every week they leave something out, right? Why? Because they want you to come back next week. So we're going to do the same thing on the email. We're going to leave something out. We're going to leave out the special trick. And at the end of the email we write, P.S., if you want to learn the special way to punch, if you have a 27-degree elbow, Look for my email tomorrow. How many people are going to be looking for your email tomorrow? Okay. Folks, I told you I wasn't going to give you seven steps because there's no seven steps to this. 
and then I use those words. But I'm not going to give you a do this, do that, do that for these emails. I want to give you examples that show you how you can creatively think about how you can hook folks to be reading your emails. So that's how we tell them about a better way. We, we don't tell them the way that they're doing it is wrong. We tell them that there's several ways to do it, and the several ways work different for different people, and it's possible that you have a certain way that it needs to be done, and I might be able to show you how to do that. Okay? So what's another thing? What's another type of story that we could tell? We can start, tell a story about somebody else. We can tell a story about a true client, or we can tell a story about a fictional person. Now, let's say that you do drawing. You teach drawing. What's, what's the problem that people have if they're learning to draw? One of the problems that they have is spatial awareness. Now, remember, I don't know very much about drawing folks. I'm going to make up anything I tell you right now. I'm making it up. I might even make up some words. I don't know. That's my disclaimer. And who knows? Maybe some of what I tell you will be true because maybe in the back of my mind I know something about drawing. I'm just going to make some things up. I'm just going to pretend. So don't go trying to... Do not try to draw using these principles. But I want you to imagine that you're going to write an email about drawing, and you want to tell a story about somebody that's drawing, and you want to solve a, a problem that people have if they are trying to draw. And they're going to, you want them to buy your $200 drawing course. By the way, if you think $200 is a lot for drawing course, I saw one for $1,800 recently, or $19, something like that. It was like near $2,000 for introductory drawing course you do online. So, what's the problem? People have a problem with spatial awareness. So maybe my subject line would be, do you struggle with spatial awareness when you're drawing? And then, how do I hook them at the beginning? Maybe I say, at the beginning, I say, have you been drawing some introductory pictures, but everything looks way out of whack? Like you draw a person and their head looks ten times bigger than their body. Or do you draw a person and they've got like these huge hands? Or do you draw two buildings and one looks, the windows look like they're the wrong size? Is it possible that maybe you haven't developed your supralateral spatial awareness segment of your brain in the L4 category on your lower right quadrant? Now, why am I using language like that? What is what is using words that people don't understand? You can't do that all the time, but this is one tactic you can use. You're very, very specific using the scientific terms for whatever it is you're going to teach. What are they immediately going to think? Oh, well, what's a supralateral? I don't. Even, I made that up, so I don't. I didn't remember what I said. What is a supralateral spatial awareness neural connectivity L24 in your lower right? Uh, occipital uh, brain part. What is that? Now maybe because we know they're going to ask that, I tell them what that is. Oh, by the way, that is that does this, this, and this. And most people when they're in kindergarten are conditioned to shut off that part of their brain and they can't, that, therefore they don't have spatial awareness. And the thing that cuts off that package of neural cells is the kinds of drawings, it's, it's fill-in-the-blanks drawing, conditions your body, your brain, to forget about spatial awareness. Would you like to learn more about spatial awareness? And reactivate the hidden part of your brain that
that was killed when you were a kindergartner by learning to draw in the lines. Now, is, is that, and by the way, none of the, I just made all of that up. Why can I do that? Because I'm teaching you. You already know what's in your niche. You ought to know the right words for your niche. I don't need to know them. I can speak Spanish here or, or, or Portuguese or some foreign dialect. It wouldn't make any difference because you know the language that's in your niche. I'm illustrating the idea of giving you something because I want you to be questioning, oh, what is that? You should be believing that there's some truth to what I'm saying. Right now, you'd be like, wow, I wonder if that happened to me in kindergarten. I did lots of coloring in the blocks, and I don't have spatial awareness today. I wonder, well, go talk to your drawing teacher. Look it up online. So where do we go next? One thing we could do is we could say, come back tomorrow, and I'll tell you about it in tomorrow's email. Or you could say, would you like me to create a training program that specifically step-by-steps reactivates your supralateral spatial awareness neural pathways in the L24 segment in your brain. Would you like me to do that? If so, hit reply and tell me what it would mean for you if we could reactivate that part of your brain. You'd be amazed how many people would write back and say, I had no idea that I had a dead part of my brain, and I'll pay you anything if you'll help me activate that part of the brain. Now, why, why is all this working? Because we've used the principle of telling them about something using language they've never heard before. We've told them something that they didn't know before. We've told them in a way that it's friendly. We have told them why it happened and it wasn't their fault. Whose fault was it? Whoever gave them a coloring book when they were five years old. That's whose fault it was. Right? And so we've taken all the pressure off. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. We haven't blamed them for anything. It's all hard to blame somebody and then ask them for money. So now we can say, hit reply. And you get a whole bunch of responses. You go, wow, I better create a training course that shows people how to activate that part of their brain. And then you're going to create a drawing program that shows them how to color outside the lines. And you go, here, I'm going to send you some pictures that have lines, but I want you to color over the lines. And then maybe you create a 10-day program. One day you color over the lines. One day you color around the lines. One day you have to make a picture with no lines. You copy a picture that has lines. And then you show people how to make things that are wrong spatially and right spatially and teach them how to do it. And then, of course, they ended 30 days. They have reactivated the superlateral spatial awareness neural pathway in segment L24 in their lower right occipital part of their brain. Right? And so let me ask you this. If you do that and they make it through the training program and next month you talk about uh, drawing animal eyes. Are you struggling with drawing animal eyes? Well, the reason you're struggling with drawing animal eyes is, I don't want to make up another story, but I'm sure that there's some reason out there why people can't draw animal eyes. And you're going to talk about it and say, do you want, would you like me to create a course to learn how to draw animal eyes? Okay, great. We have a new course. It starts next week. It starts at Monday at 10 o'clock, and you'll have people enroll in your animal eyes course. What, what have we done here? Every one of these stories, what does it do? It illustrates, it illustrates graphically in print, it illustrates graphically in print why what they're doing is not working and why working with you or learning from you just by reading the email is going to stimulate some things that will change their life. You see, all improvement is about going from where you're at to where you want to be. 
That's what all improvement does. All improvement, whether it's karate, whether it's drawing, whether it's time management, whether it's internet marketing, all improvement involves bridging the gap from where you are to where you want to be. And if people are reading your emails and you're just telling cute stories about where they are, but you're not stimulating their appetite for more, if you're not stimulating their appetite for more, you're never going to bridge the gap from where they are to where they want to be. All you're going to do is help them stay right where they are. They're on your list because they want to go from where they're at to where they want to go. They're not on your list to be entertained. They are on your list to want to get somewhere. And so you've got to show them how to bridge the gap. And part of bridging that gap is stimulating their mind to want more. So let's do a couple other examples. So what are some other things that we could do? What are some other ways that I can engage folks? So let's review what we've already done. One of the ways that we've engaged folks is we've told them something that they don't know, and we've explained it to them. The second thing is we have we've taken the enemy, so to speak. Well, we haven't taken the enemy yet. They're not enemy. But everybody they've learned from for three to five years. They bought training programs. They've learned from them, but they're not getting where they want to go. What we're doing is we're getting them to question whether or not if they've been studying something for three to five years and they're not where they want to go, is it possible, not that the other people are wrong, but that the training is not right for them? You didn't really question that. Here's, here's a secret. Once folks begin to question that, and once folks begin to learn from you in such a way that you solve some of their long-seated problems they will begin to trust that you can help them solve other future problems, and it's not even as hard because you don't have to convince them that you are right and that what was done before is not as effective, but they're able to trust you. Okay? Now, if, if you were to go out and you were to just bash the enemy, you're just bashing everybody's learned from. Oh, everybody you've learned from is wrong, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they're lying to you, what would that do? Even if they bought your course, even if you... If you brainwash them, if you beat them with a bat until they bought your course, guess what? They wouldn't trust you, and they wouldn't like you. Why? Because people don't like people that go to war with everybody else. They don't like that. And so we want, we want to allow them to doubt that what they've done before was not working, but it's not their fault, and it's not the other person's fault. It's some fault that's just happened to them. Obviously, if it is their fault, call them on. So occasionally there is something that's your fault. So how do we do that? Let's talk about that. How do you tell somebody something in an email that it's their fault without really turning them off? Okay, number one, every daily email can't be like that. Okay? Number two, you're going to set it up with writing some of these other emails to build trust. But, but one day, let's say we write an email, and the subject line is, would you want to know if you're wrong? Oh, wow. I mean, it really turns people off, right? So what do we do? We already know that that's going to turn people off, so what do we do? Our first line in the email is going to defuse that. And we're going to say, I hope that you're not easily offended. But would it be okay if I was blatantly transparent and honest with you, even if it hurt your feelings? Because there's a tiny little something that I am afraid might be sabotaging your ability to plant your garden. And you might not know anything about it. 
would you like to know? Okay, now, I want to make really sure I'm not going to lose a subscriber. So what do I ask now? Would you be willing to promise me that if I tell you what you're doing wrong, you won't go, you won't get mad and go hide in your room? Now, why do I say it that way? It's in the laugh, right? But it's true. They know that, that they're going to get mad and go hide in their room. So I'm calling them on it, make them laugh, and what happens? They'll read with an open mind. So now I say, 99% of people get this wrong. They plant their garden wrong. This is what they do. And if you've done that before, I can show you a better way. And then you tell them what the better way is. Now, we're going to soften the blow. At the end, we're going to say, by the way, thanks for allowing me to be so blunt with you. I hope this has been really, really, really helpful. And by the way, if this has been helpful or if it has not been, would you hit reply and let me know? Why am I doing that? Because I want to know if what I wrote in the email actually worked and didn't make people mad. Because if people write me back and they, they tell me that it didn't work for them or that I was wrong, et cetera, et cetera, I know i got to go tweak that email for the future. You see that? I want the feedback. Like when I write emails, I want feedback. I want positive feedback or negative feedback. And negative feedback is fine because it tells me this is a bad email. I've done something wrong in the email. But here's the thing. If you've been following me for a long time, and if you're on this call, you probably have been, if you've been following me for a long time, you know that I'm very direct. I play on that, right? I'm direct. I tell you how it is. And so that allows me to use language like, if you've been following me for a long time, I write this in the email. If you've been following me for a long time, you know that sometimes I just call things what they are. I'm very direct, and I offend people. I hope what I'm going to share with you in this email does not offend you, but it would be against my conscience to not tell you. Maybe I shouldn't tell you. What are people going to, if you write that line, maybe I shouldn't tell you. What are people going to think? Oh, please, please tell me. Please tell me. Please tell me I'm wrong, right? Mentally. Mentally. I told you I'd give you two more examples, or a couple, which for me is two. We're going to do one more. Now remember, we're writing these off the top of our head. We're not using a formula. We're asking ourselves, what's the need? Let's come up with a different niche. Um, how about swimming? Swimming. Uh, I don't know anything about swimming. Okay, so let's do this. One of the problems people have with swimming, I'm making this up, folks. One of the problems people have with swimming is some swimming, you're on your belly and some of you're on your back. It uses different sets of muscles. And when you start learning to swim, I think most, uh, again, I'm making all of this up. Most uh, swimming instructors have a favorite set of, of uh, swimming strokes that they use, and they batch them together. So when you first start swimming, you probably learn like four different moves that are face down. So I don't know, breaststroke and frog stroke and whatever, you're breast down. Why are you not taught to do something on your back? Well, because because of the fact that since the first thing you taught was on their belly, if you teach them something on their back, it's going to be like they're starting all over again. But you want to make it really easy so they'll come back to your next class. So what do you subconsciously do? You teach them the four easiest things there are to learn. So what happens is people get favored with swimming on their stomach, and so swimming on their back always feels uncomfortable. 
So you write, are you uncomfortable? And you write out the three different things that people would do on their back swimming. Are you uncomfortable with the backwards butterfly and the upside down hula hoop and whatever? I don't know what they're called, but are you uncomfortable with those? And then you say in the email, you say, are you uncomfortable? Have you noticed that the ones that you're swimming on your back, you're not comfortable with? Would you like me to tell you why? What are they thinking? Yeah, of course I like it. Okay, great. I'll tell you why. The reason why is, and I tell a story I just made up, as long as it's true for you. I'm making this up because I don't know your niche, but you do. So that's why. That's why it doesn't work. What's the solution? Come back tomorrow. I'll tell you about it tomorrow. What's the solution? It's in my ebook. What's the solution? It's on the giveaway. What's the solution? I'm going to hold a six-week training class to show you how to get over the fear of swimming on your back. We're creating suspense. We're telling stories that are engaging. We are telling them why what they're doing is not working without offending them. So I've given you multiple, multiple options and ways that you can use that. So here's your homework assignment. Your homework assignment is to ask yourself, what is one need in your niche? What's one need? Why are people struggling with that need? How can you ask questions that tease that that out of them? And then how can you tell a story about why what they're doing hasn't been working for them and why working with you will change that? That's your homework assignment for today's training. Folks, I'll tell you, what I just shared with you, obviously I shared it from a different perspective. There's a challenge that I see when so many folks are learning how to write emails is that they learn from a step-by-step formula and they go out and write all 100 emails with this one, two, three step-by-step formula and after a while the emails get really boring and so people stop reading them. One of the things that you've probably noticed if you regularly read my emails is that they don't tend to be too boring. It's not because I'm special. It's not because I do anything special. It's because when I write emails, I'm asking the kinds of questions that I ask today, and I'm asking myself, how can I make this interesting? I want every single email to be interesting. If it's a boring email after I write it, I look at it and go, that's a really boring email. I would do one of three things. I say, number one, I might say, ah, I'm not sending a boring email. Delete, start over. The second thing I might say is, what can I do to make this boring email more interesting? And then if all else fails and I really, really want to send this boring email because I think it's going to be helpful, what am I going to do at the very beginning of that boring email? I'm going to defuse it and I'm going to say I've written a very, very boring email and it will probably bore you to death. So if you're not desperately interested in learning X, Y, Z, close this email immediately before it spontaneously explodes. Let me ask you this. How many people are going to close the email? I've now made my boring email interesting, have I not? And once again, if you take that as a formula and do that a hundred times after the third time that you explain your boring email, that method won't work anymore. So every email that you write, you're going to ask yourself, what is the most effective way that I can get people thinking and that people will be enjoying this instead of feeling like it's boring? 